See, I believe in hope. I believe in belief. Hi, welcome to Coach Beard's Book Club. I'm Michaela, Coach Beard's assistant. Together with Andrea, Bex and Marita, we'll be diving into the books mentioned or seen in the Apple TV series, Ted Lasso. So, if you love Ted Lasso as much as Richard loves supermodels, then join this group of four women, handpicked by Beard himself, and let's go. Welcome back, Greyhounds. I'm Michaela. I'm from Scotland, but I don't play the bagpipes. And I'm Andrea from Chicago, and I've never been shot at. I'm Bex. I'm from Brooklyn, and I am a Boston Red Sox fan. And I'm Marita, and I am in Oregon, and it is not even raining here. Awesome. Well, we're going to give you a quick summary, a synopsis of The Beautiful and Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald. You did it. You said it without saying I said Scott. it without saying fuck. <laughs> First published in 1922, The Beautiful and Damned followed Fitzgerald's impeccable debut, This Side of Paradise, thus securing his place in the tradition of great American novelists. We can agree to disagree on that. Embellished with the author's lyrical prose, here is the story of Harvard-educated, aspiring aesthete Anthony Patch and his beautiful wife, Gloria. As they await the inheritance of his grandfather's fortune, their reckless marriage sways under the influence of alcohol and avarice. A devastating look at the nouveau riche and the New York nightlife, as well as the ruinous effects of wild ambition, The Beautiful and Damned achieved stature as one of Fitzgerald's most accomplished novels. Its distinction as a classic endures to this day. How's it <laughs> Listen, that's, that's the Goodreads synopsis. So we're going with that just to get you all introduced to it if you have not read it and you just wanted a rough idea of what's going on. It really didn't tell us much, but... Well, I also think before Michaela tease off um that's a golf joke by the way um, we, um, we, should, we should probably uh contextualize this within the ted lasso universe right so this is the book that when ted is giving books to all the players um as gifts jamie is the only player who doesn't get a young adult novel he gets this book from fitzgerald and immediately throws it in the trap good and call jamie and so and so while this might just be a a one-off joke in ted lasso where the joke isn't entirely in the title of the book we're gonna stretch it way out from there because a, a one-note joke is not much of a podcast and see what we can find between the beautiful and the damned and ted lasso but it does give some insight to the idea that maybe jamie was the uh the brightest of them all by just throwing it yeah. away <laughs> i i think it's best to start by saying that i hated this book and everyone in it and i gave up on reading it and went straight to audiobook. And after that didn't work, I went to Spark Notes. <laughs> so if you're listening to this thinking, I can't be in a book club, the, the whole one of the hosts of this did the Spark Notes. <laughs> so you're absolutely fine. Honestly, though, I didn't need to read that much of it before I came to the conclusion that this is an incredible choice of a book for Jamie. Um, and he had the right idea of chucking it in the bin, in my opinion. And I would go as far to say is that if Jamie read this book, He'd have left the team and never came back, and I would not have blamed him. Mm. I'll give you the first, the comparisons of Patch and Jamie that actually alight. They're both self-absorbed. There's no two ways about that. They're both self-absorbed. They both isolate themselves as a form of self-protection. But I would say that Patch isolates himself more during his alcoholism. Before that, it tends to be a, a fear. Jamie is not, or has not, grown up in affluence. 
He is not averse to risk when we see that he left Man City and went to Love Conquers All. He does not spend money that he hasn't earned himself. And yes, we could say that footballers are paid far too much money and that, you know, it's ridiculous how much they actually have. But Jamie still earned that, right? He, it's his work that got him it. Uh, he's paid. You know, Patch was just handed money. And when he wasn't anymore, he didn't know what the fuck to do. Whereas Jamie's money, he earned that. There's a big difference in that for me. This was meant to be a warning to Jamie. It was a really bad one, in my opinion. And I'm not going to lie, as a working class girl who grew up in a council estate, it made me really angry that Ted would choose this. And I do hope, as Marita says, that it was just a throwaway joke. Because what Patch suffers from is affluenza. And it's just difficult to read about. You know what I mean? It's difficult to to sympathise with him. He's thoroughly unlikable. Whereas with Jamie, although we know in the first one, he's he's not good. He's, he's a bit, you know, he's a bully and he's, he's nasty and stuff. It's not the same as Patch. For me, for me, I didn't feel it was the same as Patch. I will acknowledge Patch seems to suffer from health anxiety, which would have been difficult for a man in that era. But he's also a narcissist, a misogynistic, lazy boy with very little to no redeemable qualities in my opinion this book should have been given to Rupert right like that makes so much more sense to me yeah it just felt like this is Jamie in no way shape or form to talk about the misogyny though I need to get I need to talk about these lines um any girl who made a living directly on her prettiness interested him enormously uh-huh. and, and we could apply that to Jamie right because he did you know I'm looking at your arse babe you know and she's like fuck off we could apply that to Jamie I will give that but the next line, the biography of every woman begins with the first kiss that counts. In the words of Roy Kent, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, <laughs> no, the biography of every woman. Bege- There's no way that I can even be taking that out of context considering I didn't read the entirety of the book. It's just an awful fucking line. And you can kiss my arse for it. I would like to discuss where I think Jamie would actually be in a story like this if he was, you know, and then maybe you'll see why I'm so heated about this, because I'm calming myself down right now, but I hated this book. Jamie grew up on a council estate in North Manchester, and for our non-British listeners, a council estate is a social housing sort of area whereby you rent your house from the local council authority. It's lower than it would be if you were to privately rent, such like that. But, you know, your house is maintained, maintained, I'm doing air quotes for listeners, by the the local council authority. So in the US, I think the closest thing that we might have to something like that, it's not exactly the same, would be the projects. The projects. Yeah. yeah. Or Section 8 housing in general, I think, even if it's not a big... But if if it's like more run down in the way you're referring to it, not actually being taken care of to the extent that it maybe should be. I'll give it, I'll give you an example. We have council tax, whether we rent or own our houses regardless. And we live in a council estate, but my mother-in-law lives in a sort of like middle-class area in, in a neighboring town. And in their salt bins, they got salt. And in our salt bins, we got little black pieces of grit. <laughs> so that gives you an idea of like, the sort of the, the thought that's put into looking after people in areas like they're, they're not very well maintained the police in my opinion use council estates as a quota filling area persecuting people for petty crimes while ignoring the middle class areas you know like unless to attend some knob end that's complaining about litter or some other trivial bullshit like that in Scotland we have free university but in England they don't so there's very little opportunities around council estates and we wonder why people turn to crime right Jamie is a scrapper he's pulled himself 
himself up using his talent, a talent that he could have just been lazy and ignored or he could have just kept as a hobby. A comparison of 1913 Patch to a 1913 Jamie would be incredibly different. For example, The Beautiful and Damned is full of laziness, drinking, gambling and violence. And I've picked these specifically and we'll come back to why in a second. But if Jamie was alive in 1913, it is very likely he would have been assigned to the workhouse, poorhouse, which were still actively open in 1913 and weren't shut till 1930. In my opinion, workhouses were disguised as care for the poor, but they weren't care for the poor. And to be honest, I don't think we can actually believe a lot of the stuff that's written about any positive sides of the workhouses, because to me, that's just propaganda. It's usual government bullshit. It was supposed to be there to help what they called um, idle paupers, which is basically a word for unemployed. But calling them idle paupers makes it sound like it's their fault they can't secure employment in, in the area that they're in. You know, the workhouses, they would have these idle paupers or unemployed people who basically would go there to work and it sounds lovely right oh if you can't get a job come here you can live here you can work here everything will be great but we'll get on to why that's crap basically they took advantage of the underprivileged and used them to benefit the people above the people like patch really patch wouldn't last five minutes in a workhouse this is from the national trust so local poor people paupers who had nowhere else to turn entered this building as a last resort cut off from the community outside over 150 inmates and they were called inmates which should tell you enough could be housed at any time um, managed by a paid master and matron so even within the confines of the workhouse there is somebody getting paid you know there's somebody above you sort of thing their lives were severely restricted and regimented the idle and profligate another name for unemployed were occupied with dull tasks such as breaking stones for roads and pulling rope apart aspects such as education medical care or diet may actually have been better inside the workhouse than for the poor in their own homes yeah not sure um, yeah probably true but it doesn't make it good right (laughs) um it just makes you think well why weren't why were the work conditions outside so bad? Able-bodied people were uh, made to work, so breaking up the stones and pulling the ropes apart. There is literature that will tell you that they accepted disabled people and, and saw them as being deserving of the care and didn't... Yeah, not so sure about that, to be completely honest with you. Considering how we see how we treat disabled people nowadays, I really don't see them you know, doing that. But that's what I mean about not being able to believe any of the good things that we we read about it. The daily routine restricted inmates to two or three rooms. So an exercise yard and uh, their work rooms and basically where they slept. But they slept in dormitory type situations. There was no privacy. They did a lot of manual labour jobs, including cleaning and maintaining the building, preparing food, washing and other arduous tasks, such as breaking stones or turning a mill. A range of buildings at the rear provided a laundry, infirmary and cowhouse. Life was very regimented, controlled and monotonous and all inmates wore uniforms. Not that far off a prison. They rarely received visitors and could not leave unless they were formally discharged to find or take up work and provide for themselves. So really, once you'd signed yourself up for this, there was really no way out. They can say that you could have just walked up and left whenever you wanted. Workhouse discipline. Now this is getting back to the laziness, the drinking, the gambling and the violence, all of which... The punishment in workhouses was anything from being hit with a rod and deprived of your already minimal rations, which was usually just gruel, which is like a type of porridge or crap oatmeal. And so the rations being to being incarcerated in prisons and made to work even harder labor than in the workhouses. This included children, you know, like, like Oliver Twist. 
yeah <laughs> yeah essentially you know I mean like it included there was no that's a child let's not beat them with a rod there was no exclusions from that and it's not like he could go and go and get a cuddle from his family because the workhouse parents only got to see their children for a small amount of time if we can believe they actually got to see them at all I also believe furthermore it's likely that in this environment Jamie's dad would have been even more abusive it would have been horrific and this was all going on at exactly the same time as Patch spent whining about not wanting a career and all this sort of stuff so I think that's why it's incredibly hard for me to sympathize in any way with Patch even though there are aspects where he does deserve sympathy for me it's like this was all actually going on to the benefit of of him and and everybody else that has loads of money because you know they then don't have to go out and do all this work they just get people to do it for essentially free these people didn't get the luxury to say you know I'm just I'm scared of you know going and doing a monotonous career and I'm scared of like not doing what I actually want to do. They didn't didn't get that luxury or privilege. They had to get up at ridiculous o'clock in the morning and work till ridiculous o'clock at night and have very little downtime. And even when they did have the downtime, it wasn't till the late 1920s, I think, before they gave people in workhouses luxuries like books or other things that they could occupy their downtime with. I think what I'd like to say to Ted is that, yeah, I'm, I'm angry at Ted for giving him this book. And I'd like to say to him that nuances matter, Ted, because while I think Jamie is in the first season, in the first couple of episodes, a self-absorbed arsehole, I agree with that. Him and Patch cannot be put in the same category in any way, shape or form. There is nothing in this book, in my opinion, that Jamie could have learned. One, because he was so self-absorbed, he probably he wouldn't get it. He wouldn't get it, the sort of message he was supposed to get anyway, which I assume is don't be so self, self-absorbed because you'll end up destitute or you'll end up struggling. It, it wasn't enough for me. The fact that the the nuances weren't really addressed mean that I, I think Jamie was right and he should have chucked this book in the bin and I'm glad he did. And that was incredibly short because I didn't read the entire book. <laughs> But I think you brought up a lot of great points and, and and I appreciate the history because you're right. Like if you put Jamie back in that time period, then he would have been able to survive way better than than Anthony Patch does simply because of the experiences that he had to endure himself growing up and, and that he was coming from a place of hardship instead of falling to a place of hardship yeah that's true I mean I think he probably would have ended up in a workhouse when he was a child you know because if he like if his dad was abusive we don't know about his mum you know he probably would have got in trouble and then even petty things such as stealing a loaf of bread or you know swearing at a police officer would have would have landed him in the workhouse and we know Jamie would have done that right I mean we know he would have you know been a little troublemaker I do think it's interesting how much backgrounds have a an effect on how we interacted with this book because I'm take it from more of a distance and you know I have a I came from a, a working class background but I lived in Cambridge for 10 years right so the Massachusetts yeah. not the England one right so I'm kind of immunized against rich Harvard idiots right. I mean, and, and I, I have to be careful with that because I know so many lovely people from Harvard but I absolutely know people who are the current version of Anthony Patch as well and I'm in a position now where I can just sort of laugh at them but I I can understand how I would respond to this book differently if I hadn't been in that world for so long yeah Oh, that's it. That's a great point. Yeah. And I I also, um, and I kind of talk about it in my section, but just like, I also have the, I believe all books 
deserve a place, even though, right. Like I, I read this, I, like, I had a very, like, I, I, I read the whole book, but I will admit there were times I was just like, uh, you know, like, yeah. like, like, I'm just like, there were just too many words. I, I don't want to get too much into my own, but just, I just wanted to say like, there is also a part of me that I think maybe what Marita's kind of saying, like, I can also kind of take this step back and just yeah. be like, okay, this book was written a different time. It's not excusing it. It's not saying like, oh, everything he says in here is fine. This is like, everything's fine. That's not what I'm saying, but I can also say, okay, this was written a different time. There are some redeeming qualities and you know, <laughs> I, well, I definitely have a qualities. bias, you know, as you well. Know, like so- there are a few redeeming qualities. And so like, I can see like, okay, like, you know, there's something here and there's something to be looked at. Like I'll defend to the death, the right of a book to exist. Yeah. Right. Like, ban- I'm not a here about banning books and like, even, you know, whatever, like I, maybe Some I'm not going to recommend this to people to read. Right. But I'm not banning anything. I'm not going to say this book shouldn't be here because it's misogynist and it's, you know, mm. like, so that's kind of with a angle I took, but it, it is like, I, like, I agree with, I agree with your opinion of the book completely. Um, I kind of lost just, my ability to critically think like that. And that's, yeah, I'm kind of jealous you. because I, I agree with everything you're saying, but I just couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's you know I mean? Yeah. And the perspective. Yeah. 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 But I do agree with everything, everything that you're saying. And there's probably, that's why I kept trying to say in my opinion, because there will be people who absolutely, this is their favorite book of all time, right? Fair enough. It's just that in, in, in my world, they, uh, couldn't fit in at all I really appreciate everyone's sort of taking that for what it was and not like totally hateful but um I think we're going to move to Bex who might be slightly less angry than me slightly but I think uh, my background is is maybe slightly more aligned with yours in terms of my youth um and also being a child of a broken marriage and sort of like Jamie's experiences in that. Yeah. I wanted to focus though less uh, less on Jamie and more on a theme that I see recurring uh, in the book and also in the show. And so I want to start out where like maybe I'm a little less angry than, than Michaela was in her section, but um, there's going to be some dark content in here. So I'm going to throw out a couple of trigger warnings to start for people who might be concerned about this, maybe skip ahead like 15 minutes or something. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to talk about alcoholism. I talk about suicidal thoughts and suicide. And these topics are addressed in Ted Lasso. So if you've seen the show, I'm not going to get much deeper into them than we do in the show. So if it's something you think you might be able to listen, I encourage you to stick around. So I want to talk first about alcohol use in general and alcohol in literature and that sort of thing. Obviously, I say obviously, but maybe it's not. Uh, Studies do show that alcohol negatively impacts emotional, mental, and the physical health of those who consume it. And the more, the higher quantity that you consume, the more that it will impact these things. And generally in in that negative light. No one's like, woo, I'm drinking all the booze and I'm getting like, you get happy for a bit and then you keep drinking and then you crash, right? (laughs) Or, you know, your physical health uh, can degrade over time as well. And mental, which we absolutely see with Anthony Patch uh, at the end of the book with his breakdown. Uh, Michaela, I know you didn't get to the end, but he, listen, I don't have anything good to say about the ending. It was just like, there's no lessons learned in this book. None. The word is, the word is dissipated. He was dissipated. I love that. (laughs) I love that term. He had a breakdown. This is very much related to the alcohol that he consumed and the lifestyle around that alcohol as well. At least that's the way I, I read it. 
when we see alcohol in literature, you know, it's a, it's a complex symbol. And, and I do say that literature counts TV. So that's where the Ted Lasso bit is coming in. Alcohol can serve to be three things, I think, in literature. The first one is it's a passport to the past. It allows you to reminisce about the times before and what was going on and what happened and, and oh, the good times or, oh, we've moved on from those bad times, whatever it is. It can be an escape from the present, something that you use to shut down and ignore the world that's happening around you in that moment. And it can also be a way to indulge in the potentials of the future, right? Daydreaming and like what could be, and we can really have alcohol affect past, present, and future. And we see that in both The Beautiful and Damned, and we see that in Ted Lasso, right? The use of alcohol. Well, I'll get into my examples in a little bit, but, you know, we have his his turning to drinking after his father died. We have him drinking in the moment, and we have him thinking about what could be as well. And one of the bits I found when I was doing my research was that The Beautiful and the Damned is considered quote, one of the most powerful studies of alcoholism in the literary canon. And I was like, that checks. <laughs> that checks. I mean, there are others. There are absolutely others, but just the way in which it's done and the, the fact that it's done with someone of this higher class who, as readers who maybe don't relate to that experience, were like, what, like, what do you have to complain about kind of mentality, right? Like, I, I feel that way a lot of times um, when I'm reading books about wealthy people who are like, woe is me. And like, I get it. Like, there are things in their life that that do affect them, but I just I struggle to have sympathy for that. <laughs> and as I mentioned, you know, Ted Lasso leaves room for us to study the use of alcohol, past, present, and future as well. Let's talk about some of the reasons that characters turn to alcohol, like what might be driving them to drink. This is a common theme in modernist literature, which is uh, Fitzgerald's time period, which is also one of my least favorite time periods in literature, U.S. or global. And trust me, I, I had to read like, I don't know, like 50, they, for my PhD, they made us read these reading lists and they're like, okay, you can choose from like this old stuff, modernist stuff, 19th century that was like different from modernist and contemporary. And I was like, get that modern shit out of my face. I don't want anything to do with it. But you know, for some people, that's a big thing. I just don't like the excessive wordiness and like, just say what you need to say and move on. Like, I don't need eight words to describe one thing. I don't know. That's just me. That's just me. We don't see, at least I would say this in the US in particular, I'm not sure about television elsewhere, but it's not something that we see a lot of turning to in television unless it's a specific problem that a character is dealing with right like oh this character is an alcoholic or oh this character is like 16 and underage drinking and they've got to learn the ramifications of alcohol right we see it's, it in that context it's the after school special approach yes yeah exactly <laughs> but we rarely see it just sort of as a, a a growing problem and that's something i think is true in Ted Lasso. In The Beautiful and Damn Fitzgerald refers to alcohol as a gay and delicate poison. And, you know, like, oh, yay, it's happy, it's light, it's, but it's a poison. <laughs> it's gonna bring you down. <laughs> and in Ted Lasso, 
we see the presence of alcohol and alcohol consumption sort of growing and being exposed to us as viewers more and more over the course of the first two seasons. Like their alcohol is present throughout. I'm going to go through a couple examples in a minute about, you know, where I think are sort of notable moments of alcohol and not just like, hey, there's a pub and we're having a drink. No big deal for that. We, how I met your mother. They spend a lot of time in a bar. Cheers. Like, but you don't deal with those same issues that I'm seeing here. With Anthony, why does he drink? Well, he wants to, like, I guess we would put it as restoring the excitement and the pleasure of being a kid, that childhood, not that he's drinking as a child, but like to feel light and to feel that remembers that that hits on the past and the reminiscing about what was good about childhood. And it hits the present escapism, right? It's fun. I would also argue to some extent, since we're talking about a prohibition era thing, at least part of the book is prohibition era. Part of it is he drinks because he's privileged and he can. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and his his grandfather is very anti-alcohol. He's a pro, pro-prohibition. <laughs> Teetotaler. Yes. Yeah. There you go. And so it is also a, a form of rebellion for him. And I had a quote that I, when I was listening to the audio book, as that's how I managed to get through it, I did, I did make it through the audio book, although I probably zoned out on occasion. <laughs> this quote, however, really stood out to me, but he hated to be sober. It made him conscious of the people around him. All that air of struggle, of greedy ambition, of hope more sordid than despair, of incessant passage up or down. And I'm like, but that's also you. <laughs> It was still like that idea of using alcohol as a form to reminisce, to escape and to daydream. And there's even a point where he says, here's to alcohol, the rose colored glasses of life. And it's like, yeah, yeah, because that's what alcohol does for Anthony. It allows him to see things in a better light, to not be so negative in the moment, in the moment. But when he comes crashing down, he feels even worse which is why he reaches the point where he's just constantly <laughs> drunk in this book. Like he, he's just like, oh yeah, have another one, have another one. And especially after his grandfather like disinherits him, he's like, well, what the fuck do I have to lose now? Anyway, I'm just going for it. So instead of like football is life, it's more like alcohol is life for Anthony. <laughs> he even gets to the point, like I said, where he can't function without it. Then he goes beyond that, though, where he gets to the point where he can't function with it either. Right. So he sort of crosses that threshold and, and gets stuck on the other side. That's the way I understood it. He's like institutionalized at the end. Right. He's gone mad in essence. Like I just see him in like a wheelchair convalescing in this like little garden area. And they're like pushing him around in his wheelchair because he's just like lost all capacity. I don't know. Maybe I misread that. But like, that's how I saw it. I thought he was like on a cruise headed to Europe with with Gloria, but maybe that was delusion. I, maybe I just need to read. He was that like last. Wh whether he was on. He did do a cruise with her. Maybe. Oh, yeah. You know, I think he was on the cruise and not in the hospital. So he was totally gone. But like I thought the part at the end was and uh, because there are people talking about him and basically gossiping about how fucked up he is. And usually that's in a social environment, not in a hopefully not a hospital yeah. environment. <laughs> you but know I, I, I think you're be, right. I, I think you're wrong. right. I do remember something about them 
finally taking the cruise, but because so. they were planning to go to Italy when they got the money. And sorry, I I really didn't mean to be mansplaining there. I was just like, no, no, uh, I appreciate that because, like I said, I I prefaced mine with like I don't know if I misunderstood the ending, but like I def. So at the end, they do get some money and they do go on this cruise, but at that point, like Anthony's uh, oh, so no, far he's gone, fucked. He's absolutely fucked. He's no, that just, part is true. It's really <laughs> like. I imagine like one of those people that is just pushed around in the wheelchairs, in the hospitals and stuff, or like in the gardens of the hospital, like, oh, let me take you out for your fresh air. It's like, let me put you on a boat for some fresh air. But like, you're just here so that I, Gloria, can enjoy this trip, you know? (laughs) So Ted, Ted and his alcohol consumption. Uh, One of the things that I think really pushes Ted to drink more because we do see him drink very socially and casually in in the early parts of the show, is that he thinks that he's failed or at least that he gave up, right? Like, especially when it comes to his marriage with Michelle, right? He gave his wife some space, but that ended up in a divorce. And, and, you know, we do have her reassuring words. It's like, you're not giving up, you're letting me go. It's hard for him to wrap his head around that as someone who lost his father and doesn't necessarily know how to cope with that, right? He, I think he's afraid of becoming his father to a certain extent. You know, he feels like his father abandoned him and his mother, but him in particular. Well, he didn't die he did leave Henry behind, right? That's that's the way he sees it. It's it's less about Michelle and her space. It's more about him being separated from his son. And so it's different in that, you know, Ted's father died and left him forever. But I do think there's a piece of Ted that worries that he's doing something similar to Henry. And I think this is weighing on him. So again, we're talking about the past sort of reminiscing about what happened in his life in the past reminiscing does not have to be positive and oftentimes is not, but also that present escape thinking about the fact that he's not with his son. We don't know for sure that his father is an alcoholic, but like there is mention of him spending every weekend in the bars, like with his father and throwing darts and everything. And it's like, was he throwing darts while his father was just sitting there getting drunk or were they playing darts together? Like, we don't know any of this. But when I watch Ted's alcohol consumption evolve over the course of the show, it sort of pushes me in the direction of thinking there was some struggle there with alcohol. Ted says his father was hard on himself. And, and so maybe that was his coping mechanism. I don't know. And, and the part that really gets me in talking about the past and Ted's alcohol use in the past is when he discovered his father after his father died, took his own life, he, Ted, immediately went to the refrigerator and cracked open a beer and drank it. And he was 16? Is that what that was? He said it was his first beer, didn't he? Or is that me just making that up in my head? I'm not sure, but it was definitely something that he, like, just went to. He's like, I need to cope with this grief. That's what I'm going to do. So it makes me wonder if like he saw that in his father as a way to cope with grief. We don't know his father's backstory. Nuclear family idea, especially then in the early 90s, where, you know, Ted immediately is the man of the house now and the man of the house copes with responsibility by, you know, coming home at the end of the day and having a beer. So he immediately takes on that role. Mm -hmm. And so. So that could, I think, be in there too. Oh yeah, absolutely. And as I mentioned, we see Ted's drinking increase over the course of the show. It is subtle. And that's to me what makes it different from the way we're used to seeing alcohol 
issues dealt with in television in the U.S. is that it's sort of a gradual buildup, but it is noticeable. It does become more than just social drinking. And I have a few examples. They're not necessarily in chronological order. They're just I like, oh, I remember this and that. And it, it just came to mind after Ted was supposed to talk with Roy. He shows up at the Crown and Anchor and beer has beer beard has four beers. <laughs> just a Freudian like, slip a little bit, a little bit. <clears throat> Beard has these four beers lined up for Ted thinking you're going to need these to cope with what you just dealt with. So I don't know if we want to say that Beard is enabling him because he might not have seen him go too far yet, but he's like, oh yeah, this is what he does to cope. And so I'm his buddy and that's what I'll, I'll do to help him out. One I noticed in my rewatch of the Christmas episode today was that during the secret Santa and they're all like the the diamond dogs plus are in the office. There's a point where Ted cheers to responsibility. <laughs> I just found that ironic. Like, but cheers to responsibility. Drink, drink, drink. I mean, not that you can't well, drink responsibly. Of course you can, but <laughs> while well, taking a half day on Christmas as well. It's like you know, they're they're supposed to work all day, and he gave them all a half day. So responsible. Well, and when Jamie came in needing a, a secret Santa gift, I don't know if that's one Ted had just received, right? But I don't think so because he had a whiskey with a little bow on it when he was at home, right? But he had that full bottle of Balvenie or whatever scotch it was all ready to go to wrap up for, for mm-hmm. Jamie. Obviously, you know, unopened because otherwise that's a hell of a That'd gift. That'd be awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Later in that Christmas episode, we see Ted drinking that whiskey that you mentioned with the little bow on top at home. He's alone. He's just pouring whiskey neat or bourbon uh, what was it what did you say it was i thought it was whiskey but i'm not yeah, sure i don't know I, whiskey I, I bourbon yeah, I, I don't know he was drinking some brown liquor <laughs> and he was drinking it neat and of course in that scene is also uh he's watching it's a wonderful life the main character in that movie is drunk in that moment and contemplating taking his own life and so like these pieces are sort of being put together uh after ted gets his divorce papers we also see him getting really drunk and that's when he snaps at nate so there's a bit of anger that comes out that we're not used to seeing in ted when he's drinking and if you go back to the first season when like the whole thing with Rupert and all of this and he's he had been drinking beers and he's like, uh, you know, what is it he asked for? He's like a a, a whiskey, a, a single double. and a double. Yeah. Yeah. So he ends up with a triple whiskey when things don't really go the way he planned or the way he was thinking. So, again, it's no big deal to drink some whiskey when you're at an event, but to have a an issue of conflict occur and then immediately turn to give me this extra amount of alcohol, the pieces kind of start adding up to me, you know, um, little by little, like you don't think much of that charity scene in the first season, because that's really the first time we're seeing him drink a little extra and you're like, ha ha ha. Oh yeah. When I'm stressed or when things don't go my way, I'm like, Oh, gotta have a drink. Like, Oh, it's Friday. Let's have a drink. You know? Oh, finally, the workday's over. I'm going to go have a drink. <laughs> and, and so you don't think of it in, in isolation like that, but once the pieces start building on each other, it starts to become more noticeable and, and makes you start questioning things. <laughs> so I'm really curious to see what they do with alcohol in season three, because I don't think it's going away. 
Well, I thought it was interesting too, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when he goes up to Dr. Sharon's apartment, he notices, and you can see the the eye line, he notices her empty bottles of, of wine there too. Mm-hmm. Maybe the it, two of them will end up at AA together. <laughs> and he kind of judges her a little bit. Like he kind of makes like a face, like, what are you doing? You know, I was like, hey, Ted. Yeah, he no. does, yeah, I noticed that as well. And yeah. I thought, hmm, Ted, are you in a position to, to judge? <laughs> yeah. But he was just being curious, maybe. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. <laughs> the last little bit that I want to touch on is sort of the consequences and or the downfall of these characters. And, and I say the and or because we're not done with Ted Lasso. We haven't wrapped up and we hope we get more of a sitcom-y ending where he doesn't have <laughs> the consequences that Anthony Patch had. <laughs> started out with, well, what's wrong with Anthony drinking so much? Like everyone around him drinks and most of them drink too much too, right? They're always part, like the party where the grandfather shows up and is like, oh, you're all disowned. Like they're all, what it, what's the word they use? Tight? tight. They're all tight. They were wasted. But in, <laughs> in the parlance of the day, they were tight. <laughs> A little tight. Yeah. <laughs> tight in Scotland means like um, tight with money. So, yeah, that's what it means here now, too. It's very antiquated language. I just assumed it was a phrasing of the, the day. Like, you know, people will, will say they got wasted, but that might not have been the 100 years from now. People will be like, oh, wasted. What does that mean? It just means that it was no good and we threw it away. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the problem with Anthony drinking so much, though, is that he is an alcoholic. He doesn't understand, like, his own perception is really warped. It's like he has no idea how far gone he is. He's just like, oh, I'm just having a little drink. I'm just having a little something. He doesn't recognize the problem. We really see this when we compare his public drinking to his private drinking. Socially drinking versus drinking on his own, right? In public, his drinking, his alcoholism, whatever we want to call it, comes off as social right? He gets tight, but so does everyone else. In private, this is where the sort of alcoholism bit shines through, I think. He becomes someone who drinks to escape the emotional burdens of everyday life. Day after day, he drinks until he passes out just to avoid life and feelings and thinking about the future, right? We can drink to be like, oh, what great things the future could bring, but it's also like, what the hell are we going to do in the future? My life is shit. Like I'm doomed. Drink, drink, drink. He even reaches the point where, you know, at least as readers, we wonder if he's literally going to kill himself. And he does go mad at the end of the book. I mean, he's all but physically killed himself. His brain is just gone. He's shut down. That's that's how I understood it. He's just like done. Return of Dot just uh, did him in. <laughs> but you know what, fool? You did that to yourself. You did that to yourself. Oh, <laughs> um, look, the consequences of my own actions. Here they are. Anthony Patch, we definitely see consequences and a literal, like, does Ted have a drinking problem then? I mean, let's talk about the past. Besides the beer that we already mentioned that he drank when he found his father, he told Rebecca at one point that he had a story that he wanted to tell about going to prom in his pajamas. We never get that story, but like, why would someone go to prom in pajamas? Like, oh, I'm just being funny. What pushed you over that point to like break the social norms to that extent that you would be willing to do that, right? Especially as a teenager, not to say there aren't people who wouldn't do that sober, like 
you know, whatever that's, that's your thing. You just want to make a joke of it. But again, because I, that in itself, I wouldn't think twice, but when I put it together with all these other pieces, it makes me, it makes me question it. Well, well that, and that's not just the only social norm because uh, you should see what I wore to high school graduation, for example, and I was stone cold sober. However, I I believe that story involves him going to jail and that's a, (laughs) that's a different boundary. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. That's right. You know, we go back to his drinking after his dad died immediately, like without thought, that's the first thing he does is walk to the fridge and without thinking, crack open a beer. And even in the present light. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm a beer snob. Sorry. <laughs> I have a problem with that. In the present though, we, we see Ted try to use positivity. That is his like weapon of choice. That's his like, that's his coping mechanism of choice. I'm just going to be super positive to the point of toxic positivity. But when that positivity angle doesn't work for him, what does he do? He drinks. I mean, that's what I've seen time and again, when he tries to, to do the like happy go lucky approach and it doesn't work, he ends up drinking. So that leads me to my last question. Will Ted have his own downfall the way we saw with Anthony Patch? I mean, we're not there. We're not at the end. And I'm just going to throw it there. I sure as hell hope not. (laughs) I sure as hell hope not. I don't want to see that for Ted. I'm here for a show that, well, it deals with conflicts is going to give me a bit of happily ever after. I don't need the realism of Anthony Patch's downfall. It'll all work out, Bex. It'll all work out. And I I believe. I too believe. There's something interesting (laughs) there too about like, and, and I know that poor people drink too, right? But there is something about privilege, right? And being able to like spend money to drown your sorrows. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like I said, I know that alcohol, alcohol is accessible. Like alcohol is so accessible to everybody. Like, yeah, you, you know, yeah, you can go and get a really cheap bud, right? Like, and get just as drunk as someone who can spend more, mm-hmm. but, um, That's the same I guess with it's, loads of stuff. Well, yeah, but I was just gonna say, like, it's just kind of, it's just kind of the thing. Like, I think that, you know, money can't buy happiness, but it can buy sorrow, right? Like money Good doesn't point. solve everyone's problems and, and, and rich people have, you know, have things that happen to them too, but they have more ability to like throw money at it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like well, they have this ability, you know what I mean? And like, there's just something there about like, I'm just going to go to this thing outside of myself. I can just pay some money. You know what I mean? And like drown my sorrows. I don't know. I think beyond that, that having the privilege of wealth mm-hmm. affords more opportunities to be functional as an alcoholic, because you have more ways yeah. to cover up that you're not functioning properly. You don't drive a bus or operate heavy machinery yeah. for a living. Yeah. Right. Well, so that kind of brings me to my, like, whether it's helping or hurting Ted is that he has this support system. He has friends, he has family, he has therapy. Beard has given him alcohol you know like I think Rebecca at one point suggests having a drink Dr. Sharon has her own demons with alcohol perhaps maybe she just had a party who knows (laughs) I don't think so but you know it could happen are they helping him or are they hindering him and I like to look at it as they are helping him if any harm that they're causing is unintentional he does have people who step in and help him right um after he drinks those four beers he almost steps out into the road and gets hit because he looks the way an American would look to see if traffic was coming. But Roy is supposed to look both ways. 
yeah well you know details <laughs> roy is there to stop him like roy helps him out rebecca is there to talk through him when he has some of these issues to be a shoulder who understands the divorce and the pain that he's going through in that he's got these close-knit relationships that i am hoping will like form their own little diamond dogs coalition and gather together to help ted right if Anthony and even Gloria in the book had had a strong support system that would have helped them. There weren't those mechanisms in place in the in the 1920 uh, well late 1910s that we have in the present day. I think it also presupposes their willingness to listen to anyone other than themselves. And I'm not sure I got that from the characters in the book. And did they really have friends? <laughs> did they, or were they just people that were in the same position as them that they just hung about with? I I think there were a couple of them that would have actually been willing to help them at one point or another. I mean, they do they help. isolated them. They do help when like Gloria goes on her little freak out and wanders out into the train station. You know, they do help search for her, for example. And yeah. it's not. <laughs> and I was going to say, I cut you off, Andrea, and it sounded aggressive earlier. But what actually was means was agreeing with you was that when rich people do things that poor people do, they don't get the same stigma either. So like they might just call somebody who is rich and is suffering from alcoholism he just likes a drink but if that was a poor person but somebody did a great thread on twitter once about all these things that are like why is it what is okay to do if you're rich but scummy or like i don't know what you would like say in america um oh no that's completely true right yeah, yeah it's like, like when you when you're rich and you do something it's like oh he's just you know like oh he's just you know yeah whatever, eccentric, eccentric. yeah <laughs> well we went to a really fancy hotel once in st andrews never again basically around council estates you, a lot of stigma would be smoking wearing your jammies to drop the kids off at school that sort of thing and we were at this fancy hotel and then like there was people up at like 8am or whatever walking their dogs in their jammies in and around about the hotel smoking I was like you know and around where I come from they would be saying all sorts about us for that Mm -hmm. so I think it's not just I think but also that could be a hindrance because they're not being a stigma right you know might let them get away with yeah they don't take his alcohol they don't take Anthony's alcoholism very seriously yeah I feel like in Ted's environment people will take notice faster if he starts to continue to spiral and will be there to support him. So I am having like a slightly hopeful ending for Ted, even though the ending for Anthony was uh, dismal. And I know that section had nothing to do with Jamie Tart, but I don't think this book is Jamie's. Going to just add on your last point, Bex, there is that as Ted's close friendships develop with people who aren't Beard, because, you know, the limited amount we know about Beard's background, you know, there's being paid to bite. Um, There's his mom being full-blown <laughs> QAnon, right? So you can imagine him being a product of a home where alcohol was a coping mechanism, and that's why he gives the four beers to mm, Ted, right? Yes. Like, why he's this is his way of nurturing. This is how you help people through, mm-hmm. right? And so when Beard is Ted's only support, then that's a natural thing for him to turn to. But yeah. as, his, as his friendships grow outside of that, then maybe there's that help for that. So, you know, not an angry rant about the book as much as a concerned and kind of dark perspective. So Greyhounds, did you read The Beautiful and Damned? Do you agree with our takes? Let us know your thoughts at Beards Book Club on Twitter. 
email us at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com or leave a comment in the YouTube comment section. Please remember subscribe and leave us a great review. But maybe we can lighten it up a little bit more. We'll take it up a little bit of a notch. I don't know, Andrea, what are you, what are you going to say? <laughs> maybe just a little bit. And like, I'm actually, I actually want to pause for a moment and just pat all of our backs. Once again, like each of us, like I'm always amazed, regardless, we each kind of come with such in, in, such unique and individual takes on everything. And like, I, like, I've learned already so much from both of your takes and like things that I wasn't even thinking about, right? Like we could not have planned this segue better. <laughs> Because the time, like what I titled my little section is entertainment privilege and what we value. Ooh. And so like this kind of conversation about privilege was um, just very, uh, I'm looking forward to this. Good segue. <laughs> Mine goes on a couple different paths, but hopefully this will all make sense in the end. <laughs> it makes sense in my head. So we'll see. It's mine um, as well. <laughs> Um, so I just want to kind of comment first about the book. Just, um, I gave it two stars, one more than Bex. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're, we're inching up a little bit. I did not enjoy reading it. I also, like Michaela said, I disliked every single person. I thought there were too many words. I wasn't like excited to read it. It felt like, it felt like I was like, okay, I'm going to read this book. But at the same time I was highlighting stuff. And so I, I decided that I was hate highlighting. <laughs> Love it. That is the best ever. <laughs> um, cause there were all these, and I think um, Marita was saying at first and I agreed with her, like there's, there are just these lines that are like, oh, that's such a great line. And so I actually have a few and, and Marita, I know you said you had some quotes, but I just want to read a few that for me were just like, just stood there's out a whole for book me there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, things are sweeter when they're lost. I know because once I wanted something and I got it, it was the only thing I ever wanted badly dot. And when I got it, it turned to dust in my hand. And that's just, that's beautiful. Except Life that is he's so talking dam- about his wife. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just I'll the line on. on. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I don't know why that was so funny. <laughs> Again, hate highlighting. Hate okay, highlighting. Right, my wife, right, right, right. Yeah. I forgot. Okay. I forgot. We okay, need to we'll get you a red highlighter for this. Or... Okay. I, I will let you go on with your quotes. I apologize. <laughs> Life is so damn hard. So damn hard. It just hurts people and hurts people until finally it hurts them. So, so that they cannot be hurt anymore. And that's the last and worst thing it does. Life plays the same lovely and agonizing joke on all of us. Very few people who accentuate the futility of life remark the futility of themselves. Perhaps they think that in proclaiming the evil of living, they somehow salvage their own worth for the ruin, but they don't even you and I. The fire blazing in her dark and injured heart seemed to glow around her like a flame. Out of context. Good collection, though. Those quotes were like all just really spoke to me. Can I toss a short one in there? Because it kind of goes along with that theme and maybe less so with anything I'm going to say. Happiness, remarked Maury Noble one day, is only the first hour after the alleviation of some especially intense misery. I think that's that's right along with all that. That's philosophy. That is philosophy. I mean, I'll give them that. And so like, yeah, I was like, I was reading this book and I was just like annoyed and stuff. But I was just like, oh, that's a great line. Like, you know, and again, like maybe it's that, that thing that I think I had mentioned 
after Michaela's section about how I can take that step back. And I'm like, oh, I'm reading this thing and I'm like seeing some value in it, right? I'm seeing something in it that's like, well, that was really interesting, right? And maybe like holding on to those quotes, but I'm never going to read this book again. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's um, a good quality though. I think that's an excellent quality. Your, oh, thank your, you. your ability to critically think. Like I could not see past my own hate. So I applaud you for thinking the same way about it as me, but being able to see the good thing. Right. So I'm going to make hate highlighting a thing. Uh, definitely. So, <laughs> um, so I think, you know, I think F. Scott Fitzgerald was a thoughtful man for his time. I think he was observing what he saw and critiquing it. I do believe that the book is unreadable in 2022, like with the 2022 eyes on it. Yeah. Like I, I, I am seeing a, a value in kind of what he's observing. And I, and I, I, maybe this is a choice I made to not to get so angry about it. I chose to believe that, you know, this was a cautionary tale. And I think he was met, he was saying, look at this. It's not to be admired. Like this is not, I'm not putting, I'm not presenting these people to you as like, this is a pedestal of greatness. I'm showing you these people to show you, to show you how not to be, how and, and badly things can go. Yeah. I agree with you, but it's also amazing that with that degree of introspection, it turned out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy for him, right? He died at 44 of a heart attack, right? I mean, everything fell apart because of his drinking. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah I, I absolutely agree with you that he wrote it as a, as a cautionary tale. Um, but I do think it's interesting that with as aware of that as he clearly was, he still couldn't prevent himself from going down that path yeah Ted that is really interesting Ted much yeah <laughs> so like so I think this is a very strong you know very maybe kind of obvious and very strong note to Jamie you know that he needs to he needed to halt the path he was on when he was given the book and so like again I, I don't believe that the, the characters were presented in a way that they were supposed to be admired and I think he was trying to put a spotlight on these dangers whether or not he was ignoring them himself and that was a lace a lesson that Jamie needed you know we know we know that if Jamie eventually got there on his own and I do not believe he would have read this book I think he would have I could see him like for one thing just yeah he like the fact that he threw away the book was everything jamie at the time right and he would have read See, one page of that and been like using it as a doorstop maybe right but <laughs> but he did need that warning like i'm not defending the book i think it was a product of its time and like i was saying like it needs a healthy amount of editing and i do feel like books should be def i do feel like books need to be defended you know i do believe that you know and Ryan's and Ryan's book needs to exist. And I'm not going to say like, we should, you know, we should ban it. How else can we, we mock it? it? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, you know, but I'm like, okay, but let's, let's discuss it and let's talk about the problems, right? Like Ender's game, another book, like some of that racism and stuff in there like, okay, that's horrible. And like, so like, let's, let's make a point of it, but like, Hey, here's a story. And this is the value of the story. And like this language here is garbage and should never, like, you should never talk about someone in this way, really. Like maybe it's like a, maybe old books have like a big sticker on them being like, you know, <laughs> yikes. <laughs> yeah. A yikes sticker. Yeah. Yikes sticker. Yikes. Oh, and then I just kind of made a point, like it just kind of reminds me a little bit of Star Trek. Um, the original series is kind of trash. Like it's kind of, it's a lot of misogyny. It's like, un again, unwatchable in 2022. But at the time it was the most diverse show on TV at its time, right? Like, okay, I'm back. You nearly lost me with the Star Trek, but I'm back. I, I'm, I agree. You're following me. It was the most diverse sh single show at its time of cast and what they were showing. And they did have women in some, in, in some elevated positions on the ship and stuff like that. And so it just kind of has that same, like, okay, 
I love Star Trek. I hate, I can't watch the original series anymore, but can I at least think of it in a way it's like, okay, but what did it do? Right. It started this series. And that's kind of how I look at books like this. Like they did something. Okay. Enough defending. That was my, (laughs) Um, someone had to do it. How very dare you compare this to Star Trek? (laughs) And then you brought it back and I'm I'm fine. Yes. Yeah. It was no. Star Trek is way better than that. Okay. So I kind of went about a little bit of a, a rabbit hole here. Um, so bear with me. Um, join me on These my, are my rabbit favorite hole. things. I yeah, love we'll rabbit come, holes. We'll come back out I of it. I love them so much. Oh, well, and then I'll dive down another one. It's going to be a rabbit hole kind of afternoon. Yeah. So I need to take a step back and tell you about another book I just read called The Turnout by Megan Abbott. Really good book, but it was very dark. And it was about a ballet, a ballet school in England and this family that was running it and kind of everything was going on. And it was very much like, um, what was that? Dark, a black swan, dark swan, black swan, black swan movie, swan. you know, like with the, yeah, like the Natalie evil Portman girls. Movie. Yeah. Na- yep. Nellie Portman. Like the evil, like the girls, like putting, you know, razor blades in each other's shoes when one of them got the part, like just evil, evil, evil. The book really detailed a lot of the like physical and emotional rigor of like performing at a level like that. Right. And these were kids too. These were like kids performing a nutcracker at this ballet school, but like the level of like perfection on these girls about, you know, like they weren't eating, but they were also trying to perform at this high level and they were, you know, practicing all the time. And it was, it was gross. And it kind of made me start thinking about the things that we value and the things that we are okay with because they give us something else. What I mean by that is like, so all performers, you know, um, music, acting, sports, I think is kind of, you know, uh, where I'm relating it here with Ted Lasso very clearly is that there, there's an element of being a high performer in areas like that, that involves some narcissism. And it also involves some level of pushing yourself beyond levels, right? Like whether it's uh, right, like a spark of a talent appears in a child and decisions are made at that point. Like a parent is going to be like, we're going to put, you know, I'm going to put you in these things and you're going to go to, you know, you're going to go to all these after school things and you're going to excel at this and you're going to, you know, and if you fail, like I think Jamie's dad, right. Uh, very much at that level of father. Then there's the one, there's the kids who just like, if I fail, like I'm nothing. And there's a ton of pressure and stuff put on people emotionally and physically. Um, right. And there was definitely that thing in ballet. Like, I mean, they're just destroying, they're destroying their bodies by, by being ballerinas. They're destroying their bodies every day. Like their feet just become like, yeah, like I think so that's many the problems. thing with ballet is people would say it's a uh people would say it's a sort of form of entertainment but to me ballet dancers are athletes like I fully believe that footballers wouldn't last two minutes doing what ballet dancers do they wouldn't there's just you know like the actual physicality of it in the U.S. a lot of college American football players will take dance classes to like to work on their their footwork and balance yeah yeah okay that turns me on a little bit that would that would get me I would enjoy that like yeah I love seeing things people you don't expect people to be doing doing it so that I would enjoy I mean, seeing that Roy Kent ballet dancer yoga hey does, does the yoga, yoga. Mm-hmm. opens his hips want to see him in child's pose get out of here <laughs> we can we are consumers of all of this though too right we do and I don't mean we collective we as humans not I'm not speaking of all of us in the room here 
Um, but we all turn a blind eye to this. We value their craft and we pay for things, concerts, we pay for concerts, we pay for shows, games, events. We're constantly throwing money at them. The way that we treat like the whole, um, you know, in, in America, we have our NCAA, the college level athletes and like we basically don't pay them and make them do all kinds of things. Now we have NIL and I like that. Um, yes. It's, it's gotten better, but like it's, uh, yeah, it, it's definitely has been a thing for a long time. And I, no, I feel sorry. like we are trying to improve. No, you're yeah. Like I feel like we're trying to improve a lot. And even, even American football was another thing I brought up just like, you know, the concussions and the things that like we have created so many more rules and, and regulations around trying to keep that from happening. But at the same time, I, like I thought very vividly about a friend of mine, um, considering American football, she had someone in her family that was like playing football for a long time. And he ended up yeah, having a concussion so bad. He like has never been able to play the game again. And, and some of the, right, like on ESPN, they do a lot of those 30 by 30 shows where they, you know, they highlight different athletes and different things. And there have been some stories I've seen that are just like mind blowing the things that we've let go by for this. By the way, I should go back a second because Mikhail, you probably, when I said NIL, do you know what that is that college no, athletes have now? Okay. Um, Me so for the, for the longest time, college athletes were not allowed to profit at all off of anything regarding their involvement in college athletics. And the idea was to keep the playing field fair. So donors to one school couldn't just keep things there, but then there's all these video games and stuff that come in and they end up making money off of the players. So NIL is name image likeness. And so now players are allowed to make money off of their own name image and likeness when it's used. About bloody time. Else. I mean, we were literally just talking about the workhouse. Yes. <laughs> yep. That's yeah. exactly right. We, we very willingly all ignore all of this. And we, again, tend all these performances and stuff and we pay money and we idolize people who are athletes who are pushing their bodies and doing all this stuff as long, basically, as long as we all want it, as we're going to keep paying for it, they're going to keep doing it. Right. Like, like we're not going to help fix this problem as long as we're all supporting it, you know? And so, um, going back to the ballet for a second, I mean, it was just, it was almost kind of stunting these girls and, uh, and boys, both of them, they're almost stunting their bodies and everything they do, but just to have these nutcracker performances that we all go to every year. Like, I don't know how many times I've been invited to a nutcracker performance every damn Christmas. And I'm like, you know, I've seen it too many. Like I, it's not a great story, but right. But like, but these things are and like, it's just thing about taking girls to their nutcracker show. And it's supposed to be, you know, like a big, a rite of passage for a lot of girls. And it's um, kind of ugly. You know, we value the entertainment and we value our enjoyment of these things over everything. We, we, it's easy for us not to think or not even be aware of what it takes sometimes to do some of these things. You know, I mean, even musicians, like I, you know, I, I worked briefly in the music industry in the earlier part of my life. And I saw the thing where people like you rolled into town, you know, a band rolls into a, you know, any city and everyone, they expect those at those musicians to be at peak performance. And they're like, I don't care if it, you know, I don't care that you've been playing six shows, you know, and you have to take drugs even to get up and get on stage because you're so exhausted, like, right. And like, and we, we don't care. No, you're here to entertain me. I've paid my money and my ticket and you, you know, get up on stage and you better hit play all the hits that I want. And you better be entertaining or I'm going to complain and talk shit about you. And so we see these people, we see these people as owing us something again. It's just like this entertainment it's um, uh, and I, and, and I, I believe that this is something that Ted Lasso is trying to change, right? Like he wants to make these people come to come in every day 
with their team because they love this sport and they want to be there. And these people are their friends and it's a team and they're, they're getting more out of it versus like, I think again, Jamie's dad is more about like, you need to be the star. You need to, you know, you need to perform. You need to do everything, you know, to get us more money. Like it's greed. We as a society value wealth and excess and drama over anything. Um, we actually don't care about these people and we expect them to entertain us. And I feel like some of the things that we look at upon the wealthy, it falls under that same category, um, right? So beautiful and down to portray people who had privilege. These are people, they didn't have to give anything for society. They could judge, they could live however they wanted. And, and in a lot of ways, people like that are um, idolized, right? Like I even think about some of our like, right, uh, MTV Cribs or um, what other show, even like all the reality TV of today, right? Like what have the Kardashians given society other than having money? But okay, how many people, yes, and yes. But, and, and what do we do? They have sh- show season after season after season and, and millions upon millions of viewers, right? We don't, we don't view things ethically. So no. like we don't, or at least we don't, we haven't really up to this point. I think, you know, things have changed what with the pandemic and then George Floyd's murder in 2020 as well. I think a lot more people who weren't socially aware are now. But yeah, I mean, not like we were just saying earlier about the, uh, was it the NIL you said where they can actually make money from like college football? Yeah. But before that, they couldn't. And we'd literally just said about the workhouses and we're 100 years on and people are still profiting from other people's work. And that's what was am turning this into and eat the rich. But do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, because not only did these people not have to give to society, but often they took, you know, more than they were. Like, that's just how I think how I couldn't get past it. But this has really opened my eyes. Yeah, like so. Th- there is a there is a a lot of tendency for us to kind of look at people like this and maybe kind of feel like we're supposed to be worshiping them or we're supposed to be, this is the way to really live and, and all of this. And, um, kind of to bring it back to Jamie <laughs> here, we, we're going back, we're coming, we're coming out of the rabbit hole back to Jamie. Um, you know, Jamie is a product of this society. He had a talent and people, you know, uh, and people with money wanted it. People with money wanted him. Um, same with, you know, Roy's even little story about, you know, when he was a little kid and just driven away from his family to be on a, you know, to be on a team and do all this. And it was like, we don't care. Like, you know, we as society don't care that, that about that story. Well, cause now Roy Kent's, you know, winning, winning games for us and winning titles for us. And so he's our, you know, we're, we're cheering and we're going to pay our money, have the you know shirt with his name on it, but we don't care about what happened to him. You know, I think he had a father that valued his talent for the glory and what it's going to give his family name over anything that was happening to him. It was about the money it could earn him. And he entered a sport where the fans only value him scoring. Um, and again, I do believe Ted's trying to change this. I think he's trying to bring back the value of the love of the sport, the team, the value more than money and the fame. Um, and I believe he gave this book to Jamie as that warning, maybe a little, he- again, maybe a little heavy handed. Um, but I think that Jamie's choices in season two actually start sending him on a similar path than Patch. Right. Like he was making, he was making decisions that weren't about his love of the sport anymore, but about his brand. Right. Like, and even Keely, you know, I mean, even Keely was kind of, you know, pushing him a little bit. And I love Keely, but like, she was even like your brand, what, you know, what are we going to do about increasing your brand and like all of this? And it's like, that's what we value. And that is what we encourage. And, and, and again, that's, I think 
unfortunately this book as ugly as it is, is actually a, like the conclusion of this, but this is what we've created again, because right. Like I look at these people in this book and I look at the Kardashians and I'm like, what's the difference, right? The Hilton's the Paris Hilton, like, you know, well, and even Keely in the show, she is, she is that person. She's an influencer. She's kind of, she's famous for being kind of famous or whatever it is. She says mm-hmm. she is a, also a product of this culture. And I think that's probably what brings her and Jamie together in the first place. Like she may be pushing Jamie within that, but she is also a victim of that same culture of like, you're pretty sell your, sell your beauty. Like that's mm-hmm. the, your physical beauty. And, yeah. and she, she isn't Rebecca. And, mm-hmm. right until she breaks with Jamie she befriends Rebecca and she you know gets to know Roy a little bit more she realizes or she's able to see the worth that she already had that maybe she didn't recognize before so I was just going to say I think one of the interesting things about this novel is outside of the people in it like Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald they were the the media stars of their generation right and they had this very self-aware self-constructed image that they built and deliberately promoted to put themselves in this position I mean I'd argue versus reality stars today like the Fitzgeralds had talent right but I was gonna ask that I was like so are you saying their books are like the Kardashians books or? no no because no, I, wrote I, them. I, I the Fitzgeralds very much and, and to some extent later in their lot in their short lives right they became victims of that own sort of self constructed celebrity but that that is very much the role they played in the jazz age scott fitzgerald was the voice of his generation it's easier for these people to pull the wool over our eyes then with social media now we really get to see behind the curtain and see what these people are actually all about and some of them have really like slipped up and like to the point where you're like you thought that was okay to say on social media so i feel like the more we know the more we can stop idolizing people who don't deserve it but yeah, yeah there are some people who just will anyway uh, agree, like, but I, I also don't, I can't think of a lot of reality stars today that could put a sentence together the way F. Scott Fitzgerald. Oh, absolutely but. not. No, no, <laughs> I, I agree with that. I just but is mean, that like, a bad general. thing? I don't want I, sentences like his sentences. Yeah. I'm sorry. I like his sentences. <laughs> you he get makes your me turn. laugh. I will. I will take my turn. I'm going to be so happy. <laughs> So Everyone I have, needs to turn into the video for that part because you're going to see all the rest of us with our eyes rolling back into our <laughs> I'm just teasing, Marita. My, la- my last little part was actually just another kind of left turn. But when we were reading Ender's Game, I believed that Sam's book was to tell him something about Jamie. And I believe that this is actually, again, something for Jamie to lean on Sam a little more. I, f- I feel like there's something, there's something about the juxtaposition of Sam and Jamie and all the differences in their life, right? Like Sam, he has everything Jamie is without the ego, you know, yeah. not saying that he doesn't have some ego, you know, but like there's less. He has professional um, ego, I think. Yes. Whereas Jamie and, just has ego. And Sam has loving supportive parents that encourage him you know, with love versus greed, like they're his parents just want, they want him to be right. They want him to be in a good team. They're happy. He's on a team with Ted and that's, what's important to them. Not the fact that he's making this money, you know, Sam is playing the sport because he loved it. And once he found this coach that supported him, he he's like, I'm going to stay there. And he started excelling, right? Like, I think he's starting to get to like, right. Like, uh, when we have the one episode where they're like chanting Sam's name, like he's starting to get, you know, he's starting to get up there, be a valuable player like Jamie. And then, um, you know, Sam not taking the opportunity 
to be the Jamie of that team or in Africa, right? Like he had an opportunity. He could have very easily gone, made a lot of money, but he decided to stay. Right. And, and I thought that, you know, that interesting kind of twist of him opening that restaurant was just, you know, he, he, he's, he stayed here to finish what he started, um, which is also a comparison with Nate sidebar, but like, right. Nate also like went for the glory and, you know, Sam is who you can be with fame, talent, and money and not be the beautiful and damned. Yes. Right. Yes. Sam is that. And so my, my last little joke that I wrote was that Sam and Jamie need to learn more from each other and that I might just start shipping them. I might, uh, I might mm-hmm. start a <laughs> Sam and Jamie ship here. Mm-hmm. This might be the beginning. Cute. <laughs> That's so cute. What, what do we call that ship? Uh, jam. Sa- Sam, t- oh, jam. Party sauna? Jam. <laughs> Party Sam sauna. Tart? I don't know. <laughs> Sam Tart. <laughs> jam. 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 I, know, jam. I, th- I think jam was the, the best yeah I, I genuinely enjoyed like even though I started this off being so like really fucking angry um I, I really enjoyed that and yeah I think there's certain parts of it where you might have changed my mind a little bit just a little bit I don't still go back and read it or anything but let's, I'm, yeah. let's, I'm not fucking reading let's see if Marisa can drive it home though and make us actually like this book I don't know if we'll get let's there do but. This. So, so so I want to I want to make a distinction here because you know we're talking about like Goodreads ratings and how many stars we give this book and I think it, it actually kind of bothers me that we don't have multiple sort of rating levels because like do I like anyone in this book I I do not and do I think they're self-destructive in interesting ways and that's an interesting point because relative to all of the art we've seen since then no um but do i think that for its time and in its context it was brilliant Uh, i absolutely do and i also think there's a a few relevance things here that we sort of should dive into so i'll start off and i talked about this a little bit because we talked quickly about how the fitzgeralds were very much sort of building their own celebrity uh and, and also how as introspective as Fitzgerald was in terms of how he portrays this in his books he still wasn't able to save himself from that same thing but there's several spots in the book where it's even self-referential right like a a couple of quotes that I'll pull out like at one point um Dick Caramel which I'm sorry I'm 12 is the funniest name (laughs) in the book every time I saw it he actually at one point is quoted as saying well you know these new novels make me tired my god everywhere I go some silly girl asks me if I've read this side of paradise are girls really like that if that's true to life which I don't believe the next generation is going to the dogs right this side of paradise was Fitzgerald's previous book right he's like making fun of people making fun of him and then there's somewhere else where someone says well I hear all the new novels are sold to the moving pictures as soon as they come out which is funny because Fitzgerald was very much a movie guy right so and this wasn't novel- this book turned yeah. into a movie like within a year right yeah so the novel was serialized through 1921 parts of it right it was released as a novel in march of 22 and then it came out as a film in january of 23 right so the turnaround on that is amazing there's there's a very self-awareness uh, amount of self-awareness there and then there's one line that isn't actually talking about people is um so the quote is august is still proclaimed relentlessly by a thousand crickets around the side porch and by one who is broken 
broken into the house and concealed himself confidently behind a bookcase from time to time shrieking of his cleverness and indomitable will. He's talking about all this loudness of Craigslist. I love that line, by the way, right? But there's one that's gotten in the house and it's just making all this noise about how fucking brilliant it is, right? But it's not, it's an asshole, right? It didn't get there through any cleverness. It's just they're making noise. And that's so much the people in the world Fitzgerald is is writing about, you know, born on third base, hit, thinking they hit a triple is exactly who these people are. And they think they're so fucking clever, but it's not by any of their own means that they've gotten where they are. I think Fitzgerald was self-aware enough that that's the sort of thing he cooked into his novel. So for a little bit of cultural context, uh, I'm going to, in the next wee little bit, talk a lot about um, and, and really just pull from uh, a professor at Troy University. His name is Kurt Kruna, and he is a big Fitzgerald guy. He's the executive director of the F. Scott Fitzgerald Society, and he's written a lot about Fitzgerald, but specifically, I've found a lot of his stuff on the cultural context in which Fitzgerald was writing. A big point he brings up about why Fitzgerald wrote the way he, he did and why he was so important is... So we come out of the 1890s and we start to see, right, this book was the early 20s, this huge shift in how youth was viewed, right? And so for the longest time, society had this view of children as young adults. Um, Kernet refers to them as apprentice adults, where everything is just this sort of progression from children getting wisdom and growing into adulthood. But there are all these societal changes that started happening around this time, right? So we have compulsory schooling, we have child labor laws, and we start having things like social groups where people are really cohorted into groups, you know, like the YMCA or maybe the Boy Scouts, where, where youth is together in age cohorts, which hadn't really been seen at that scale before, at least not in the US. Okay, so we have this shift in society in that manner where we start having youth coming together as more of a cohesive group. And so then... Uh, in 1904, there's this huge study, and you know, normally when I say a study, I think of a scientific one, and we have scientific papers that are, you know, three to ten pages or something. This is like a 600-page book. Um, I found it online and wanted nothing to do with it, but it's this by psychologist named G. Stanley Hall, and he was a really big deal in psychology, like a really big name. He was also hugely problematic. He was a eugenicist. He had all these horrible racial ideas, but he had this hugely influential work on adolescence that basically took this idea idea of adolescence as its own distinct developmental period. Um, so he characterized it as a time of storm and stress, which is very much what we think of as adolescence now, right? I think the age limitations for adolescence were a little shifted in his work from what we think of, but it's still a general idea. And so Kernut characterizes this description of adolescence, and I'm going to quote Kernut here as, you know, saying it's the struggle between natural youth striving to retain primitive instincts and a civilized adult world excessively reticent in its passions and creativity. So we've got this age cohorting of, of, of kids or young adults, right? And all of a sudden we have this idea where we start to think that adolescence is this distinct stage where we're not just sort of smoothly transitioning. So in the jazz age, we have this first generation that's really grown up with that idea, right? They've really been raised in that and they're cohorted. And so they have their own subculture. And we see so much of this now, right? With the, you know, different generations talking about distinctions between generations. And it's very specific now, but that's really the first kind of time it happened. So they've got their own slang. They've got their own ideas. They've got their own stuff going on. And the adults are like freaking out about the morality of the whole thing. And so there's this great quote from the book that kind of encapsulates this. And so when they're out in the country looking for a house, and of course, Gloria is a horrible driver because the book is not short on misogyny. I will grant anyone that, right? Gloria is this nightmare of a driver and she's just crashed the car into a fire hydrant and they're right by this real estate agent, which is why they end up in that town, like going to get the house, right? And so they ask this guy about it after just getting out of their car that's crashed. 
And the quote is, the man nodded, unable to follow such a sally of spontaneity. There was something subtly immoral in doing anything without several months of consideration. And so that's this encapsulation of like, adults kind of freaking out about this younger generation with this absolute impulsivity and that kind of behavior. With a lot of the writing that was done for or about adolescence that preceded Fitzgerald, the characters are kind of meant to be instructive. Like, you know, these are the moral lessons they learned and this is how they got through life, right? Give a sense of how people should live. And then we get Fitzgerald and kind of why he was so important is he wrote about youth from the point of view of how they see themselves, right? Instead of how adults wanted them to, to be or how adults wanted to see them. And so in doing this, and I'm going to quote Kernut again, he was reversing the values traditionally attached to youth and maturity by idealizing the former as a standard that adults invariably fail. Youth for Fitzgerald marked the apogee of one's romantic promise. Once that peak was reached, aging exiled one into the cold mundane world. In portraying age this way, Fitzgerald drew from a common pool of imagery that equated growing up with the biblical story of the fortunate fall, right? So I'm psyched with myself because I learned this term post-lapsarian, right? Which is after the, the fall, right? So now Fitzgerald's created this world instead of like, we're trying to get the wisdom of age. Well, no, we're trying to live our life while we can because once we're through our youth, right, we've kind of missed our peak potential and it's all over and like we're just it's all downhill from it and I think it's important to realize this in this context because as you read the book at least when I read it he's writing about turning 30 like it's the end of the fucking world right <laughs> and, and as a bunch of women who have, to me as, as a bunch of women who have uh done that a while ago <laughs> Indeed. let's say just a while ago not Indeed. That just a while ago but you know and <laughs> like, like I said <laughs> There's, there's this this self-fulfilling prophecy because for Fitzgerald, it was kind of very downhill for him. It was very important for him to like achieve early, but then he died of a heart attack at 44, right? He isn't just writing surely from that youth perspective, right? That quote we had earlier, he has that self-awareness and he has that understanding of the alienation that previous generations have to this. And so we also throw into this world the flapper, which wasn't just youth, but it was a response of women to this innate understanding that any freedom they have is linked to them being young because as soon as they get married they're stuck in a very traditional role we have adults starting to have this more permissive understanding of adolescent behavior and in reading about this time period there is in addition to dick caramel a phrase that will never not make me laugh the idea of petting parties <laughs> petting parties is so funny like i was like what when awkward. that happened petting's <laughs> kissing right that's like snogging uh, sexual contact up to and including I think not actually having intercourse so oh, I dry uh, humping right <laughs> petting you know as one I does count um, on our Scott to to say it like it is lower the tone we appreciate you right and so so we have adults starting to to have this permissive understanding but there's this conflict between like concerns about morality but they were also worried about people marrying too young and but if they're not marrying young then what are they doing right so it's this it's this weird time of social upheaval and then we've got women who are like well why the fuck would i not have all the fun i can right now right because that's the period in which they're able to live their life right so the flapper came to like exemplify this romance of youth and because obviously women in, in lower social classes would end up needing to work and have different kind of ideas about life but for upper class women really their only socially acceptable pastime when they're young is trying to find an appropriate husband and so we end up with a situation where it's 
kind of got some ideals of feminism because they're trying to go out and live and be free, but it pits women against each other because it's all a giant fucking competition. Right? Yes, because there can only be one. <laughs> yes. So anyway, so we have this youth movement that I, I think society is still to varying degrees recovering from, right? We're starting, especially as society ages, we're, we're starting to appreciate older people now. But that's, that's kind of where we're at. And that's where that age, you know, that obsession with youth really got started. We are in a world now where we have all of this age cohorting and you see, you know, arguments about Twitter on what specific generation you're in. And it, it gets a little weird sometimes, right? But we do have this aging population. So people are, you know, like my life is so much better now than it was when I was 30, right? Like people understanding X. what you can accomplish as you age. And so, but there are some areas where it's not really true. There are some ages where 30 is the end of the fucking world. And one of them is sports, right? And there are some notable exceptions to athletes, right? But there is a lot in Ted Lasso that deals with aging. Roy's aging out of his career. I forgot we were even talking about Ted Lasso for a minute. I was so engrossed in like your analysis of the the story and the time period and all this. I was like, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden you were like athletes. And I was like, whoa, yeah, Ted Lasso, of course. And then you were like, yeah, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> so I want to give a lot of credit to Professor Kernut for, for his analysis because I did draw so much from that. But I do think there's a lot of Ted Lasso here, right? So we've got Roy aging out of his career. We've got Jamie who needs to grow the fuck up. Uh, Rebecca and Ted are both coping with divorce in middle age. And Rebecca has this additional issue of seeing her much older ex-husband having a child with a younger, effectively replacement for her. There's something that Fitzgerald used a lot of. And I was reading this going, holy crap, there's a lot of this in here. And there's a lot of imagery around color. And I'm not talking about skin tone. I'm talking specific color imagery that Fitzgerald uses. And the great Gatsby is known for this, right? <laughs> the Green Lantern. <laughs> right, right. How yeah, many that, that times green have light. I had a student talk about the green light and the green right. light? And I'm like, oh right. my God, the green light. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. But there is a ton of use of color in Beautiful and Damned as well. And notably at the start of the novel, because so I when I was looking through you know, I started narrowly with Beautiful and Damn Scholarship, and I just got broader and started looking at stuff about Fitzgerald. So there are people who have done really intelligent analysis of, of color use in Great Gatsby and like really quantitative, which is amazing to me and really speaks to my nerd side, right? We're counting where different color, you know, references are used. I just did a quick run through because I am that flavor of nerd, right? And so you get the start of the novel. And you have all of these reds and oranges and yellows that are attached to descriptions that give you the sense of luxury, right? The, the red and yellow of the fire, there's an orange lamp that he really likes. There's all of these references in there like that, right? And then we get midway through and we're in this transitional point where they find the country house. It's a gray colonial house that someone's put a red roof on and there's very transitional split color imagery there. And so then as they fall into this awful sort of dissipation, God, I love that word all this use of gray and adjectives like hazy and milky and opalescent that don't show up at the beginning of the novel. And we do see bright colors, but whenever we see them, they're attached to somebody else, right? So at the very end of the book, when they're on the deck of the ship and they're gossiping about about Anthony, they describe the woman as being the pretty girl in the yellow dress, right? All of a sudden, all these luxury, wonderful youth colors are attached to other people. And, you know, when he goes off into the army and he, and he has this affair with the much younger dot, what really catches his attention about her is her violet eyes, right? There's this just color and this brightness and this youth about. And so a couple quotes from the book 
Uh, one of them is youth has come into this room in palest blue and left it in the gray cerements of despair, right? So we start off with something that's very, very colorful and just fades off into gray because you turn fucking 30. All right. Everything's gray. <laughs> and so another quote is because desire just cheats you. It's like a sunbeam skipping here and there about a room. It stops and gilds some inconsequential object and we poor fools try to grasp it. But when we do, the sunbeam moves to something else and you've got the inconsequential part, but the glitter that made you want it is gone. This is this loss of color. And there's even, you know, the word colorless is used multiple times towards the end of the book where things are happening like going on like that. Okay, so what does this have to do with Ted Lasso? There are really some specific things done with Ted Lasso and there's some quick anecdotal things we can go through. Again, I know I'm a nerd. <laughs> so I went through and just not, I didn't watch the whole thing, but went through and started picking color patterns and color palettes. And it can be a little hard to spot because it's a, about a professional football team, right? Um, and so, so much of it is going to be- You get um, a cookie. Yeah! Uh, oh, now we're into a reward and positive, positive reinforcement for calling it football. <laughs> right. So much of it is just going to be around Richmond colors, right? And so it's hard to deal with the blues and golds and reds because so much of it is Richmond branded. Yeah. But, you know, as one-offs, we have, you know, we have the scene where Rebecca first gets the biscuits and her top matches the pink of the biscuit box, right? We have that eggplant power suit that makes a, a few appearances. Uh, one that I really, really like, when we have the gala and Rupert appears, he's like the only one in a white tux right so he acts like he's coming in to save the day even though he's totally just being a piece of shit and he's like purely selfish right so like later on in the dart scene what does ted say he's doing when he talks to rebecca white knighting white knighting right so it's the comparison of those two things like right both men are showing effectively their true colors right but it's a difference between being who you want people to see you are and who you actually are in terms mm -hmm. of but there's another use of color and of course we have the whole rainbow episode and the use of the song rainbow and you see higgins wife you know and and she's dressed in blue right as those lyrics come up i noticed in rewatching rainbow because i did go through that one more slowly there is a lot of use of green very conspicuously did you all notice that um roy's inside jacket yes that's one of the ones i'm gonna right but Sorry. so no, 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 no. That's exactly one of the examples. And, yeah. and I'll talk about that specific one a little bit later. But like at the beginning of the episode, Higgins has the payroll folder and he, it's like right up on screen and it's green. And then Keely has this bright green drink, the smoothie that they start with a close up on. And there's just all this green, you know, the it's Nate's parents, Jade anniversary. The woman at the restaurant is named Jade. There is so much green in that. And I don't know, like I, I didn't crack the code i don't know if it's someone's wife's favorite color or, or what it is but i i'm curious to know people's thoughts but i'm going to get off that and and talk to something a little more relevant but because color and the loss of it is used to depict aging so much in beautiful and damned we can look at a couple of people in ted lasso and and bring together the themes of color and how we show aging and so if we start with roy right because he's very much coded as the fading star and his color palette dark is heather black. charcoal dark heather charcoal <laughs> um and interestingly if he has a cognate in beautiful and, and damned right competing for the woman he's blokeman right whose name later gets changed to for those of us who finished it gets he changes his name changes to black right and so the commitment to this color pattern or this palette is so strong and this is such a dorky detail to notice but in the locker room 
of Richmond, the towels are Richmond colors. You see like Will the Kitman handling the towels, they're red and they're, they're gold and they're blue. But in the second episode of season one, in the Biscuits episode, Roy is wrapped up in a towel. And I love that detail so much. <laughs> they're not putting him in a colorful towel. He is staying in that monochrome black. Uh, I can't imagine Roy wrapped in a yellow towel. Like that's just too funny to me. Yeah. Uh, the players <laughs> as well in Rainbow, the opposite The opposite team is grey. I noticed that yes, as well. Just yes, walks in, they, grey they sock, grey bottoms, grey top. Like so, yeah. oh, your mind, I just love it. And so Roy is black in black so much of the time, but right then when we have the game at Everton, and we get this flash of brilliance from him, right? He's old and he's slow, but we get that flash of it. And the team is in their third kit. And I know you all aren't sports fans. Do you it's know what third kit one. is? It's, it's the, the orange, orange one. one. <laughs> it is the bright orange one. So third kit is when your regular colors clash too much. And I don't mean clash in a don't look good together. I mean, oh, you did. Oh, I I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, because my because I was uh, because I was like, why are they? I've seen their away strip and I've seen their home strip. Why are they not wearing either of them? And he explained it to me. Oh, I see when I say I know things, my husband explained it to me. That's okay. That's, That's how we learn. You still know them. Right. So, so right. So in, in saying clash, I mean, when they're not distinguishable enough from the other team's colors, right, we have this, and it's usually some highlighter color, you know, bright yellow, bright orange, something like that. But when we have this flash of brilliance from Roy, it is in that bright orange Jersey. And then we do get, when he starts coaching, we kind of go back to black because the track suits, everyone else wears, right. Everyone's wearing their coaching track suits, but Roy gets this black, might be very very dark navy but it reads as darker than the other ones it's this black t-shirt that has red details it's like a ringer and we see beard wear it a little bit later on too but if you see him coaching like that wearing that shirt his outfit just reads a little bit darker than the rest of the coaches which makes me laugh it's a real commitment to like roy's whole mystique i tracked all his suits all the way through there's a couple times where he's wearing you know because his suits even have black shirts right so there's once where he has a dark burgundy tie the christmas episode he splashes out and his tie is navy with like gold dots and he um, has that but, little pom-pom yes and he gets that little pom-pom that's right but most of the time with the exception of the rainbow episode where he's running and we get that splash of green where we could argue where he's kind of indulging in something more youthful because he's running, right? There is only one time where he is wearing a shirt that is not predominantly black. Anyone want to guess? Um, when he's not wearing one in the wheelie bin? I know that's wrong. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, I love it. So at, at the end of Goodbye Earl, when he's with the yoga ladies, he has a red, and, and, and I love this because if I had to order the color, I would search for a heathered red t-shirt. He has this red shirt with um, like Asian style golden dragons on it. And that's, he is the youngest person there, right? And all the yoga ladies are in bright colors too, but that is the only colored shirt that he wears, right? So it's this amazing coating of color coming away from him, but splashing in when he is youthful in his situation, which I love. Um, and I, I'm not saying this is a, a specific thing or a shout out to Fitzgerald. It's a costuming choice though. And I love that. Mm -hmm. So meanwhile, the intentionality we have... behind these color choices and all yeah. right. So and then meanwhile, we have Jamie, right? And he's impetuous. And there's definitely like in the first season, there's black and white in his outfits. But there's icon. also I icon, right? There's also these flash flashy colors. I mean, he just reads as so immature. And even like if you compare Roy's chant, right? You know, it's got swearing in it to Jamie's, which is a fucking kid's song, right? You can make yeah. that distinction in age there too. I wonder what this says about Isaac, because his outfits are oh his yeah his brilliantly all... colorful like yeah so colorful. They, they, they're always very flamboyant but like with jamie so in the first season right he has some black and white stuff but he's got 
more than one brightly colored floral tracksuits, right? They're like so over the top. I want one. I think they're Gucci. You'd have to drop a pretty penny. Mm. Adidas has some that are, uh, that might maybe not those, but Adidas has some mm. floral tracksuits. So, um, but his gala outfit isn't like a normal blue suit, right? It's a pretty bright blue suit, which he wears with a, a, a shirt. bright, well, no shirt, right? But a bright orange pocket square too. And he has tomato soup as well, which is orange mm, and spells indeed. it on his nips. <laughs> right. So <laughs> so everything there is bright. And then we see him on Lust Island and he's, and, and of course it's Lust Island, right? But he's in this bright orange floral shirt and bright orange trunks and he's all bright colors. But the minute he's out of there, he's in black, right? When he's meeting with his agent, his color palette oh. just instantly subdues and it stays that way for the duration of the season. So he still has styles that read really young, like the way things are cut and the way outfits are put together read really young, but the color is mostly drained out of it, right? He has a camo jacket, but it's really subdued. It's not bright green. It's like almost earth tones. Yeah. And so something that's really interesting is when in the signal, when he confronts Roy about not coaching him, Jamie is in this dark heather charcoal jacket. He's in this very dark, subdued outfit. And because Roy is still in his coaching gear that has that red detail, right? When Jamie is being the mature one, there is more color in Roy's outfit. <laughs> I thought that. that Iron Giant blew my mind. And I thought, you know, this is phenomenal. But, and so like, even like at the funeral, you know, because he was, everybody's in black for the funeral. But players still have some pretty flamboyant suits, right? Isaac's suit for the funeral is still, but Jamie's like dressed like a grown ass man right? He is dressed mm-hmm. like an adult. <laughs> he even tells so, him what shoes to get. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. So the one big exception to Jamie's color palette after he's sort of come back as a mature player is he has this bright red vest. He's wearing it at some point in rainbow, not for any specific scene, but it's also what he wears when he goes to apologize to Roy for saying to Keely that he's still in love with her. And so this is a situation where we have Roy being the adult in the situation where Jamie's trying to be mature, but, and so we have that color palette reversed again. And I love that. And so there's another really notable example with color uh, in, in the show and that's Nate. And the reason Nate's relevant here is because he's talked about how he's terrified of aging, right? He says mm-hmm. he doesn't like baths because he doesn't like ending up all wrinkly. But at the same time, he absolutely bristles when anyone uses youthful language to refer to him because he treats it like it's diminishing him, right? When Colin calls him boyo, he just absolutely, right, cannot stand it. And so- Which is weird because Welsh people call everyone boyo. (laughs) Right, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. He he does not like that that kid kind of reference. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Nate's outfit the whole first season with the exception of the suit for the gala right is the same and so it's not unusual for people within like a sports organization there's you know kind of one pattern that the coaches and higher-ups might wear and something else that somewhere else on the staff might wear but so Nate's whole first season he has this quarter zip tracksuit top and it's the Richmond colors but the the abdomen the torso part is bright red and so you, you were talking about Star Trek Andrea Andrea sorry it, it makes me think of like the the red shirts in Star Trek, right? Because all of the people kind of lower down in the organization have that that red torso. When he gets promoted to coach, he immediately switches to what everyone else has, which is the all the other coaches have this full zip that has turquoise on the torso. So this is immediate color change for Nate. But then for the games, he starts wearing the suit, right? 
and the suit at first he's got like a burgundy shirt with a burgundy tie he'll do some colorful ties but he gradually moves on and gets darker and darker and darker in terms of the ties that he wears and then right near the end when he goes clothes shopping with keely he tries on a suit in, in not just richmond colors but really i mean you could have a suit that's blue with maybe a gold shirt and a red tie that's not flamboyant but this is like a, a plaid it's like fucking it's loud this it suit. screams right i Did love you? it I, I love it so much because it's so out there yeah. because it's so over the top it's like so bad it's good it, it's not confident right back enough around. to pill it off though no you know no, I mean? no it's not at that no. stage there's people fit. who could probably wait and he it knows and be it. like hot oh, but you got to, you got to feel it right and he knows that but at the same time he rejects the suit and it's a rejection of not only this richmond identity but also he rejects it in favor of an all black suit right so if we have this color coding of color being youth or just and then losing that color as we age he's rejecting that in terms of i mean the evil path he's going on and of course there's a whole lot of star wars imagery with everything getting like dark here too and i'm, I'm not trying to discount that but i'm trying to stay a little bit on topic right so he gets this fully black suit which is what he wears when he goes full on evil so he has drained the color out of his own life and at the same time we've got that color change in his hair where he's gone from dark hair to completely silver i don't think any of that is a specific shout out to fitzgerald but it is consistent i'm really interesting to see if they stick with that or what they do because i don't i think everything in the show is intentional but i i i don't want to argue intent because i intent has a right answer instead of looking and being like hey i saw this thing and this was awesome right i just like going huh well i, I that looks like sense it, it looks like feel this like is nothing. happening once you explain it, it to me it doesn't feel like nothing do you know what i mean it feels well, like and, well and and like the book i think it, Gerald, to your point like he he uses the color very clearly as symbolism as well and so like yes the fact that like so there's so many things in Ted Lasso that feel so intentional so so like when you hear about something that people say was like a throwaway comment like the Fountainhead comment and it like I refuse to believe that because nothing is throwaway right like you like all of this symbolism about color and how important that is like that all takes so much thought mm -hmm. Right. And like the thought that he like says something sometimes, I don't know, like not that he can never say anything that's just off the cuff, but like, I, I don't believe it. The, the thing for me with Roy's suit with a green insert is that's a choice because when you're working with green screen, you try to avoid that color. Right. Oh no, that every, was, that was I, a choice. I firmly believe that all of that green and rainbow is intentional. I just don't know what it is. I thought for Roy, it what was does a it mean? type thing. <laughs> and, and for Roy, it might, but there's there's just so much green in there. And, and yeah. you know, that, that might be worth talking about. There's Maybe one other thing I kind of wanted to bring up that's totally off base here, but because we've sort of called out the misogyny in this book, and boy, is there a lot of it. Every woman is fat or ugly or boring. Um, but there are some points in there um, where Fitzgerald has what are really kind of enlightened for his time phrasings in there. Anthony says, you like men better, don't you? And she says, oh, much better. I've got a man's mind. And he says, no, you've got a man like, you've got a mind like mine, not strongly gendered either way. And this idea that people could like let go of gender that way, I thought was kind of interesting. And I also thought it was interesting at some point later in the book, Gloria says, it's funny, but I'm so sure that those kisses left no mark on me, no taint of promiscuity. I mean, even though a man once told me in all seriousness, seriousness that he hated to think i'd been a public drinking glass <laughs> which which by the way is like the 
most ridiculous insult. <laughs> um, For those just listening, Michaela just left. She's done. <laughs> She's gone to the crown and anchor. P.S. Eat the rich. Okay. But then her response to him was she just, I just laughed and told him to think of me rather as a loving cup that goes from hand to hand, but should be valued nonetheless. I mean, that's I mean, the, but, the passing around imagery is bad, right? But the it it reminded me of the conversation that they had when Keeley had just slept with Jamie and Ted is calling Roy out for being upset that Keeley had her own history, yeah. not unlike that of Roy's, right? Mm -hmm. This this idea that you know women don't get used up. <laughs> it's it's and not they're a not objects. Quantity. You know, right. they're not, not yours to possess. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, no, I understand your issue with the cup imagery, right? No, but, but um, <laughs> even with Gloria's answer, well, she's still sort of in that cup analogy thing. She she's... is trying to take ownership over that uh, that objectification. Like she, she still sounds like a pick me as well. Like I'm not like other girls. I don't like that. No, that well, the and and I do very much think there's a distinction between how women are pitted against each other in the novel mm -hmm. versus how women are able to not do that in Ted Lasso, and I I really appreciate that. That's it, because it, when men write women, that's what they think we're like. They <laughs> think we're all fighting over them. I mean, Mate, we don't whole... give a shit. We want to have fun. And, <laughs> and but but I do think there has been an active movement of women uplifting other women that yes. has. Uh, in this century particularly uh, really evolved quite a bit because we're trying to get past the idea that there is only one role for a woman. Like only one woman can be this boss. Only one woman can be like, get this thing. Like right. we are, we're in an era in humanity in society where we are saying, Oh, like we, we don't need to compete, but, I think a lot of men who still write about women keep that mentality that we're like catty Oops. and petty and fighting one another. So, well, I mean, and, let's be let's be honest. There are men, women. I'm sorry, who actively support the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, and pick, I mean, pick me, and, pick me, yeah, and and part of whatever grace I'm affording Fitzgerald while I read this is with so much misogyny. I mean not only was he product of his time, but he wrote this when he was in his mid twenties. I had so much internalized misogyny in my mid twenties. Like, yeah, same. I, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's yeah. amazing. He got yeah. as far as he did, even though he doesn't necessarily deserve to be congratulated for only getting mm -hmm. that far, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, there's one point where he's talking to someone who went to some school called Buckley and talks about all the fancy stuff he learned. Right. And Anthony, of course, is a Harvard snob. Right. And so it says Anthony could not help wondering what possible fancy stuff he had learned at Buckley in 1911, an irrepressible idea that it was some sort of needlework recurred to him throughout the rest of the conversation and just how much of an Ivy League shit he is. And wow. how as a, I as was a, like, oh, I have been on a date with that guy. As a public, <laughs> as a public school advocate, someone who attended public schools from K through PhD and teaches in a public university, fuck off with that. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, that's the, that's the purpose. Like you said at the beginning, that is his intention is for it to call out that mentality. And, and I get yeah. that. It's just it's so frustrating when you get to the end of the novel and there is no lesson learned. There is no growing up that takes mm -hmm. place. There's just break. You just break. And, mm -hmm. and you know what? I don't know. Maybe this will catch us some slack, but it kind of reminds me of young Stan Twitter. Mm. 
people who are say like, oh, like if you're above the age of X and yeah, then there's different ages, for different people, like you, you shouldn't be in fandom. You should be doing responsible things. You should be like right. feeding your kids and going to work. And I'm like, but we're not allowed to have fun. Like wait till you get to this age. Like fuck off. So, and, and something, something I actually forgot to bring up while I was talking about Jamie is we, we actually see him start to appreciate older people considerably more as we go through, particularly like when yeah, May tall tells Yodas. the pub lads, yeah, they're tall. Oh, people are so wise. They're tall Yodas. Hopefully I was just going to say, um, Marina, what you were just saying was making me think a lot about like, again, another time, amazing, like, approaches that we all took as Andrea mentioned like we all come at this from something different and I just I I love when our minds come together but um Michaela I know you had something you wanted to wrap us up with uh I do I do I want to ask um from the movie Ted 2 there is a bit if you've seen you'll know where F Scott Fitzgerald is called fuck Scott Fitzgerald because that must be his name because otherwise, why else would he hide it? So my question for you, ladies, is does he deserve the name Fuck Scott Fitzgerald? I think I know the answers to this, given what we've spoken about. But <laughs> I, You know what? Himself? No. His books? Maybe. <laughs> That's my opinion. I, I can co-sign that. I don't think he deserves it. I think, again, like... Yes, he could have always done better. He was a product of his time. You can always do better. But um, Scott Fitzgerald, do better. (laughs) Do better. (laughs) See, I'm not even willing to defend him as a person because I think it's kind of ambiguous whether or not he was a total fuckboy, right? And I think we won't really know. Um, Yeah. But I, you know, I probably appreciated this book more than the rest of you. (laughs) I appreciated your take on it more than I appreciated the book. Quite frankly, <laughs> all of your takes, but yeah, uh, no, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but but we, much, much like Kerouac, I think he might be more quotable than readable. Um, yeah, I had a mm-hmm. lot of parallels. I was drawing. I almost considered bringing in Kerouac uh, to my discussion on alcohol because it was used very heavily there as well. But uh, just for the sake of time, I left it out. But we got a, another book coming up next month. Andrea, what is our next book? Um, so our next book is Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. And I'm looking forward to everyone enjoying that a whole bunch more than they did this book. Yeah, yes. <laughs> the palate cleanser, really... if you will. And, yeah. and I think we might be having a special guest join us for that episode. Is that oh, hoping? Yes. We're hoping. So yeah. stay tuned and you might get a, a new perspective to listen to in our next episode. But yeah. grab the book you know, physical copy, digital copy, audio book, cliff notes, whatever you want, however you can approach this book and uh, join in and uh, give us your thoughts about how Bird by Bird connects with Ted Lasso. Thanks everybody. See you next time. (laughs) See you next time. (laughs) Bye. Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club or send an email to us at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. If you prefer the video version, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Coach Beards Book Club, now.